Well, good morning. Uh, I want to begin today with a question, and it's a bit of a survey, and so I brought a prop. Um, I want to know if, when it comes to these, uh, if you call these flip-flops, would you raise your hand? That's your preferred term for them. If, If you call them sandals, would you raise your hand? If you call them thongs, would you please do me a favor and adopt one of those other two uh, titles for these? Uh, That's your next step today. It's not on your handout, but uh, it would just uh, help everybody in the world. I I used to live in a pair of uh, these, these Rambo sandals. I I wore out multiple pairs, and I was was a flip-flop guy, and I wore them all the time. Uh, when I worked in, in Phoenix, there was a guy who worked security at our church, and he called me hippie pastor um, because I always wore flip-flops. I did not wear, like, the business casual dress code of the church. I think the reason the staff got a dress code was because of me uh, and, and my habits, um, but then luckily that, that dress code went away. But I, I've always loved, I've always loved sandals. Um, but the term flip-flop has been adopted and adapted over time. And and when you think about somebody who changes their opinion for no reason, when you think about somebody who who switches from one view to another view, not because their mindset has changed, but because the payoff has changed, we have a term for that in our culture. We call that person a flip-flopper. Now, this is not a term of endearment. It's not a term you want to ever associate with yourself. But today, as we dive into scripture, we're going to see the story of some flip-floppers. Some people who lived one way and then later lived another way. And and we're going to see the consequences of that kind of flip-flopping today. Now, as you know, if you've been here with us for any time, we're in a series this summer called Relentless. We're working our way through the Minor Prophets, one of the most overlooked and understudied sections of Scripture. And the fact that you're still here means that you, uh, you're you in it for the right reasons. This is not the easiest section of Scripture to study. But what we're finding each and every week is that there is some gold in here that we're digging up uh, and that God is speaking to us through. And if you're following along, we're now in the second half of this study of the Minor Prophets this summer. Uh, This is week seven, and uh, we're diving today into a book that uh, is not very well known. I I know it's not very well known because I don't know anybody who's named their kid after this book. It's the book of Nahum. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about our friend Nahum today as we're going to learn from him. Uh, Nahum was from a city of an unknown location. The book of Nahum, uh, he describes himself as the Elkoshite. Now, we don't know where Elkosh is. Uh, we know it was some region of that uh, area, but there's, there's you know, disagreement about where he actually was from. We do know when he wrote the book of Nahum, and he wrote it after 663 B.C. That's when the city of Thebes was destroyed. For those of you who remember your Egyptian history, Thebes was a big deal to the Egyptian empire. And it was written before 626 because the, the city that we're going to learn about today begins to decline in that time. So somewhere in that 40-year range, Nahum writes this book. And he has some contemporaries, some names you might know, Jeremiah, Zaphaniah, and Habakkuk. I'm just going to pause right there and just put a little preview out for next week. If you know somebody who really is struggling with hope today, if you know somebody who is going through a really dark season in life, or if you would say, I'm somebody who's just as, it's a difficult time for me, you're going to want to be here next week. 
because we're going to be diving into the book of Habakkuk. I call it Habakkuk. Some people call it Habakkuk. And, and that, to me, is one of the most hopeful books about how do you live hopefully in dark times. So if you know somebody who's in that place today, I'd encourage you to invite them to be with us next week. So as we dive into the book of Nahum, here's the big idea that we're going to be unpacking today. The goodness of God is most clearly seen in the days of darkness. The goodness of God is most clearly seen in the days of darkness. Now, I think we'd all like to see the goodness of God in the best times. I mean, I wish I could just see the goodness of God and I have to go through the hard times. I have to go through the dark times. I don't have to go through those difficult moments. But what we see in the book of Nahum and throughout the scriptures is that we see the goodness of God really clearly in some of our darkest moments. And we're going to see this in the book of Nahum today. So if you brought your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it up. Now, as I mentioned, I don't know anybody who's ever been named after Nahum. It's, it's one of the least known of this overlooked section. Uh, if you're with and with us, this is coming right after the book of Micah, as I mentioned, right before the book of Habakkuk. If you open your Bible to the middle, you'll hit Psalms, go to the back. If you open it near the back and you hit Matthew, starts heading towards the front. And we're going to be in Nahum today. It's just two pages in my Bible. It's not very long, uh, but we're going to do our best to make sure that you're well familiar with as much as possible of this book. And so we're going to stand this morning as we honor God's word and read today. If you don't have a Bible, our friend Kelly is going to have the verses on the screen for you. Here's how Nahum begins. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea, and he dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him, but he will completely destroy Nineveh. With an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word today, you would open our hearts. And even if it means we have to get uncomfortable with a side of you we don't often look at, or things in our own lives that we'd like to overlook, we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you want to reveal to us today. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now, the book of Nahum, like a lot of these minor prophets that we're looking at in this series, it, it, it leads us to consider some warnings. The words of prophets are rarely um, candy-like. They're hard. 
They come because people have been hard-hearted or they've had their ears plugged or they've been missing the truth. And so today from the book of Nahum, we're going to see three distinct warnings that go to the people, but also that come to us as those who are reading today. And here's the first one. Beware of repenting of your repentance. Beware of repenting of your repentance. Now we've said in this series that the word repentance is a big word we're going to hear over and over again. And it's a, it's a word that's often misunderstood uh, in culture. It does not mean that God hates you does not mean that God wants to smite you. What it means is that you've gone in the wrong direction. Repentance simply means that you confess and admit that you've been doing something wrong or going somewhere wrong, and you acknowledge that, and you confess that, and you own that, and then you turn around and you go in a different direction. And what we're going to see today is that there is a warning that's coming to us to beware of repenting of your repentance. Beware of abandoning your repentance. And that's what happens to the people who are receiving the message of the book of Nahum. Nahum, in some ways, is a sequel. If you were here on Father's Day, we we covered the book of Jonah. And in many ways, the book of Nahum is kind of Jonah part two. It's a sequel to the book of Jonah. Now, some sequels are awesome, like Empire Strikes Back. It was way better than A New Hope. Some sequels are not as good, like Dumb and Dumberer. I'm not sure if you knew there was a sequel to Dumb and Dumber. Just, I'll save you two hours and whatever it costs to buy it online, not worth it. Not nearly as good as the original. But if you remember the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah ends like this. In Jonah 4, 10 and 11, it says, And the Lord said, You cared, Jonah, about the plant. And if you don't understand what the plant is, you can go back and watch that message online which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. This is God speaking to Jonah. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And so God speaks to Jonah and the book kind of ends with a cliffhanger. And he says to Jonah, I care about the people of Jonah. Even though they are so wicked and evil that they don't know their right hand from their left hand, I want to see them not be destroyed. And so God extends grace and mercy to the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. One of the takeaways from that message is that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And so at the end of Jonah, you see a, a, a massive city of the ancient world, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian nation, turn in repentance. And, and, they, and they weep, and they, they put on sackcloth and ashes, they fast, they pray, their hearts are broken before God, they do everything right. But that's how Jonah ends, and sometime, many people believe, up to a hundred years later, you have the end of Jonah moving to the beginning of Nahum. And by the beginning of Nahum, the people of Nineveh and their generations after them have repented of their repentance. They've abandoned the way they were going in, their new direction, seeking to honor God and abandon their evil and wickedness. And they have returned to the path they were walking at the beginning of Jonah. And and they're even outdoing themselves. The the commentaries I read this week about the evil of the Assyrian Empire, I, I can't actually tell you about. Because I didn't give you a warning that no, under, no one under 18 should come to the service today. 
I mean, it was gruesome, violent, gory. They were a wicked, wicked people. And so the end of Nahum ends like this. Nahum says, king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you, God's judgment, will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? I mean, you heard us read the beginning of Nahum 1 about the jealousy and the anger and the wrath of God towards Nineveh for their wickedness. And and what Nahum is saying is that when anybody hears how God brings judgment on you, they're going to stand up and clap. They're going to be excited that God is allowing you to experience his, his judgment and his wrath and his anger. Because everyone on earth by this point had experienced the constant cruelty of these people. And you might say, Scott, how, how do you end up there? I mean, in Jonah, they're, they're doing everything that, that you're supposed to do. They're repenting. They're recognizing their sin. They're turning from it. But a hundred years later, they're repenting of their repentance. And, and the book of Nahum is this incredible reminder to us that our relationship with Jesus cannot be inherited. You can pass on a lot of things in your inheritance. You can pass on real estate. You can pass on wealth. You can pass on important tokens. You can pass on pictures and videos that that contain memories. But no matter how much you love those who are your children or your grandchildren or your loved ones, you cannot give them your relationship with Jesus. They have to develop and own their own relationship with Jesus. One generation cannot pass on what God did in their midst to the next generation. That generation has to decide they want that for themselves. And what we see here with the city of Nineveh is that their forefathers and their ancestors who lived in the time of Jonah, they had an encounter and a relationship with God. But by the time we get to Nahum, they've said, I don't want that. And this is where I want to speak to everybody in the room, everybody who's watching online that is in any way involved with the next generation. Whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a coach, a teacher, a mentor, you have an opportunity to set up the next generation by how you live, but you have to always remember the limits of your influence. That you cannot give them your relationship with God. And there is this tension that it is incredibly important for us to know that we can't give them our relationship with God, but it doesn't mean that we can't set them up for that. We can't put an environment around them where they learn about that and discover that. Several years ago, I stumbled on a quote that has, that has convicted me about what my primary responsibility is, not just as a pastor, but as a father. Andy Stanley said, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. See, even in our culture today, if you're a parent, the temptation is not to see your greatest accomplishment as the the people that you are raising up. It's to see your greatest accomplishments as the achievements of your career or your vocation. And yet, 
Sometimes the greatest things that we contribute to what God does that outlasts us is the people whose lives we touch, who we help shape, who we raise. And so you say, Scott, I I don't have any kids or we don't have any grandkids or there's no kids around. That's awesome. We have an opportunity for you every single week here to invest in the next generation because the Christian faith is always one generation away from passing away because every generation has to choose it for themselves. They cannot inherit what came before them. And we see that here in Nahum. It doesn't matter that the people of Nineveh repented under Jonah. A new generation came up that did not live that way. And now they're facing judgment. Here's a second warning from Nahum. Be on your guard against the temptation to define God in terms of your understanding. The warning is to be on guard against the temptation that is available and comes to all of us to define God according to your own personal understanding. Now, when we were reading through Nahum 113, when we were standing a little while ago, or you were sitting at home on the couch, for those of you watching online, there was some harsh language in that text. Language about the wrath of God, the anger of God, the jealousy of God, the judgment of God. And for many of us, those aren't our favorite adjectives for God. But we like describing God as loving, caring, encouraging, merciful, gracious. But when we start thinking about God having wrath, or God having anger, or God bringing judgment, or God being jealous, we begin to get, some of us, a little uncomfortable. I was reading an author when preparing for this message, and he talked about writing a message on the book of Nahum, this specific passage, Nahum 1, 1 through 8. And he gave that section to a friend. He said, hey, read this. And his friend finished reading. He's like, ooh, not sure I like thinking about God like that. And isn't that our struggle? As Voltaire says, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. That we have a temptation to shape God according to our values, according to our understanding. Even those of us who claim to believe in Scripture, there are the parts of God that we kind of hyper-focus on, and then the parts of God that we ignore. And part of the, the reason that I wanted us to study the Minor Prophets this summer is so that we didn't end up in that place where we made God in our image. Because you can't read through the Minor Prophets and not come face to face with those uncomfortable parts of who God is, his wrath, his anger, his jealousy, and his judgment. And we're going to see today in the book of Nahum why God has to have those characteristics. For the Ninevites and the Assyrians to be as evil as they were, for everyone on earth to have been the constant victim of their cruelty, and for God to sit by and do nothing about it, would have been the opposite of everything who God is. The people of of Nineveh were the most evil people on the face of the earth in that time. They set the bar for cruelty. There were some cities when they heard the Assyrians were coming to attack their city would en masse commit suicide. Because they would rather die at their own hands than go through the cruelty the people of Nineveh would carry out against them. And here's what one commentator said about this. He said, for God not 
to have overthrown the Assyrians would have meant he was not true to himself. The character of God means that evil cannot triumph in the world. So in a world where evil exists, there is a requirement that if God is good and holy and pure and right, he must respond against that evil. And that response often comes with wrath. But it's important for us to recognize that there's a difference between God's wrath and our wrath. Some of us have a hard time with God's wrath because we grew up in a home with a a parent or an influential figure who was really wrathful and angry. And when you hear God has wrath, you go, ooh, if that wrath is like his wrath or her wrath, then you got to understand it's different. See, when any human person carries out wrath, they do so as a sinful and broken person. Even if the wrath is over something good, inevitably that wrath comes out in sinful ways. But God's wrath is in response to evil and sin. And God's wrath is carried out in the context of his goodness, his perfection, and his holiness. So he, he has wrath, but he has wrath without sin. How many of us can say that we've ever been angry and that anger hasn't led us into sin? Very few of us. I, I would say I haven't ever. My anger always leads me into sin. But that's not the case with God. God is just. And when he measures something as evil and sinful, he responds with wrath to bring judgment so that evil does not persist. Here in Nahum 3, he talks about the city of Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood. That's his term for Nineveh. Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot. Charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. That's how evil Nineveh was. And so we have to beware of ever having an image of God where God doesn't care about that or respond to that or do something about that. Because if he doesn't, he is no longer a good and right and holy God. As Adrian Rogers says, when a a guilty man is acquitted, the judge is condemned. And so if God was to let them off the hook without any justice, he would be an unjust judge. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship and praise. And yet, I can know what some of you are thinking. Because I've thought the exact same thing. Scott, that's all good. It's nice to hear good reflections, but what about when God seems to be doing nothing? What about when evil and sin are persisting and it seems like God doesn't see and God doesn't know and God doesn't care? That's where the rub is, right? We don't understand how God is working and we don't understand what his justice looks like. And when it doesn't happen according to our timetable and in our way and according to our values, we think, well, then God just must be skipping out on that. And that's the place where we have to step back and say, am I going to define God by my understanding, by my values? Or am I going to allow him to be more than I can comprehend And am I allowing him to set and establish 
that standard. You know, the people of Nineveh were incredibly wicked. And part of the reason they were so wicked is because of the God they worshipped. One of the primary gods in the city of Nineveh was the god Ishtar. And the god Ishtar was worshipped as a god of uh, sex, a god of fertility, and a god of war. And the people worshipped the god Ishtar for centuries. And then what happened? They became a people who were known for being violent. They became a people who were known for wicked sexual practices. They became known as a people who had no restraint. The book of Psalms describes people like that. They have hands but cannot feel. They have feet but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. And those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Translation, we become like what we worship. And the people of Nineveh were worshiping this god Ishtar and becoming like who they worshiped. Now, many of you would say, hey, I I think it's pretty silly to worship a stone creation. But we have not been able to escape the patterns of idolatry even today. An idol, at its core as Tim Keller has said, is anything you look to for what only God can give. An idol is anything that you give your heart and your imagination to fully. An idol is anything that you cannot imagine living without. That's the same thing for us that Ishtar was for them. And at the end of the day, when you worship something, you become like it. You worship money, You become greedy. You worship popularity. You become insecure. You worship security. You become controlling. We still today become like what we worship. And the temptation is that we need to beware of defining God according to our understanding because when God doesn't show up the way that you think he should and doesn't act like you think he would, you're beginning to go down the road of idolatry, making a God for yourself in your image. Here's the third warning from Nahum. The only place of refuge that can secure you is the mercy of God. The only true source of security in this world is not money, it is not a system, it is not power, it is the mercy of God. And I want to make sure you know the the meaning of the word refuge. A, A refuge is a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. When, When you find a place of refuge, you are safe and sheltered there. And that's exactly what Nahum talks about in Nahum 1.7. He says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. He's saying, hey, there, there is some hard news in this book of Nahum. But the good news amidst the hard news is for those who take security and shelter and refuge in the Lord. God is good to them. He looks after them. He protects them. I love what Palmer Robertson says. He says, the Lord is good in Nahum 1-7, but only to those who take shelter in him. 
He's not good to the people of Nineveh who are living wickedly, who are finding shelter under Ishtar's refuge. This phrase, the Lord is good, suggests not merely faith or entrustment to the Lord. It recognizes an imminent imminent danger from which the person who trusts must seek deliverance. And the people of, of Judah who receive this message from Nahum about what will happen to Nineveh, it was to them to be a message of comfort and refuge. I mentioned I've never known anybody named Nahum. If you ever meet somebody named Nahum, the meaning of that word in Hebrew is comfort. That's why I've entitled this message, Relentless Comfort. Because to the people of Judah, this harsh message about God's judgment and anger and wrath against Nineveh would have brought them great comfort because it was a sign that God actually cared for them. God actually saw what was happening to them and God was going to do something about it. In fact, he does. In 612 BC, the city of Nineveh is completely destroyed by the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians. Just a few hundred years later, Alexander the Great walks through this area of the Middle East and has to be told that this is where Nineveh once was because there is literally no sign of it left. It was wiped off the face of the earth. It was the greatest city on earth. The most powerful nation was capitaled there. And it was completely destroyed. A fulfillment of the promise that God made to his people here in the book of Nineveh. And the purpose of Nahum is to comfort those who are seeking security in God. The purpose of Nahum is to say, hey, if you are experiencing the cruelty of others, the reality of evil, wickedness coming your way, then pursue refuge and safety and security and protection in the mercy of God and entrust that God, because of his goodness, will have wrath and anger and jealousy and judgment against those who are evil and wicked. But beware that you don't find yourself in that group. Because then you may find that the Lord is not good to you. But that the Lord is opposed to you. Because of what you're doing. Jesus even echoes the words of Nahum in Luke 12. He says, but I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? We've experienced a little bit of inflation since the Bible. Yet none of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. You are worth more than many sparrows. Because isn't that the crux of the question that comes to our mind when we're faced with the evil and the wickedness and the destruction and the injustice around us? We begin to think, God, do you care about me? Do you see what's happening to me? Do you recognize what I am experiencing? Are you going to do anything about it? That's what the, the temptation entices us to believe that God doesn't see, that God doesn't know, that God doesn't care, that God is not doing anything, that we do not matter to him. And the words of Nahum 
echoed in the words of Jesus are, I see. I know. I care about you. And I am at work. Will you trust me? Or will you trust in yourself and your understanding more than you trust me? And when we trust in him, and let's be honest, this trust is not easy. It stretches us and calls us to a level of faith and dependence that we may have never experienced before. What we find is that we experience the goodness of God in the midst of our days of darkness. We experience God making a way where there seems to be no way. We experience the goodness of God in the midst of our worst moments. In addition to my comments about your flip-flop titles, I've got a couple other next steps for you today. And here's the first one. I want to invite you today to ask yourself and a trusted friend. This isn't just a self-question. Ask somebody that you trust and reflect on this yourself. Is there anywhere that I've repented of my repentance? This week as I was writing the message, I I got really convicted. And I got convicted that there was places in my past where God really broke my heart and I repented over past sin. But I recognized that that emotion has waned. And I don't remember the strength of my emotions and feelings as strongly back then as I do now. And so the temptation is that many times our repentance is rooted in things that fade, like emotions and feelings. Are you still walking in that path of repentance when God broke your heart and showed you your sin and you turned around? Or like the Ninevites, is there somewhere where you've repented of your repentance? Number two, I want to invite you this week, because it's only two pages long, to read through Nahum and pay attention while you read it to your reaction to God's wrath and his jealousy and his anger. And if you cringe or you struggle or you go, I just don't think that's actually true of who God is anymore, then if I can push you for a little bit, I think it's worth wrestling with whether you've made God according to your understanding and your image. And then number three, because I didn't have time to read it today, I want to invite you to read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a beautiful psalm that is honest and true and raw and real about someone who is wrestling through God not showing up and doing what they think God should be showing up and doing. I'm sure none of us look at the world today and think that maybe we know better than God about what God should do. But for the two of you in the room or watching online that have felt that, I want you to read Psalm 73 and ask yourself, where are the places that I'm running to for refuge in dark times? We're coming out of a dark time the last 18 months. There may be continued dark times into the future. And where we run for refuge, that is our God. Where we run for refuge in dark times is a tell about our God. And some of us over the last 18 months, we have run to our idols and we didn't actually know they were idols. But they were the things that we were looking to to give us what only God can give. Maybe it was online shopping. Maybe it was a bottle. Maybe it was checking your account. 
or your investments more than you'd like to admit. Maybe if it was watching news or consuming content or scrolling social media. And if you read Psalm 73, what it does is it tells the truth about the journey and the struggle through dark times and the power of making God your refuge. Trusting in his goodness. And I hope it stirs you the way it stirred me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you are good. We don't always experience your goodness according to our timetable or our process. You don't do things the way we do them because you are so much greater. And so we just confess in all honesty that there are places that we struggle with you because you don't meet our understanding. But we thank you that you are a God who is bigger than us. You are a God who is beyond us. Jesus, I believe there's some people watching and some people here in this room that are in the middle of a dark season. Things have been hard and they seem like they're not getting easier. And they've begun to doubt or question your goodness, your love, your faithfulness, your care. They don't feel like they're worth more than many sparrows. And I pray that today and this week as they process what they've heard today, as they read through texts like Nahum and Psalm 73, that you would do a work on their heart and soul that you would show them that you are good even when they're in the midst of darkness. We thank you for the reminder that you are our refuge. When we turn and put our hope and trust in you, we can be secure. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.